Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 8th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is our September 2018 End Times update with our friend Don Fox. Don Fox. I almost said Donald Fox. That's okay too. This has so far been a series of semi-casual discussions illustrating how both current and recent historical events fit into the end times prophecies found in our Bibles. This evening, at least for my part, this may be a little more casual than usual. And I am going to let Don Fox give us his introduction. Hello, Don. Good evening, Bill. How are you doing on this fine Saturday evening? Wonderful, I guess. It, it's my <laughs> second podcast today. I pre-recorded next Saturday's podcast this afternoon. So I'm not burned out yet by any means, but here I am. Well, um, good. I'm glad to have you on board here. Um, I think the uh, I think this should be a good show tonight for people. Um, you know, again, we're, we have kind of a non-standard take on on prophecy. You know, we uh, we've been in you know, the last couple shows, or maybe you know, three four shows ago, we started on Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I thought we'd get back to that tonight. And you know, we we played uh, you know a couple shows back, we played the Joel Richardson mp3 and that's kind of the standard you know churchianity you know jewish type interpretation of ezekiel where it's going to be all these countries flooding into the you know all these armies flooding into the the outlaw state in palestine israel um but as you know we we heartily disagree with with that take and um, um we have our own uh take on on ezekiel and just for those not familiar, maybe they came across this podcast. Maybe they're not familiar with Ezekiel. I thought I'd just read a couple of verses here to, uh, to as an intro. Um, so this is from Ezekiel 38, um, 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, in verse 2, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophecy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And here's kind of the key verse for me, 4. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, and all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, and even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Uh, Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, and all of them with shields and helmet. Now, um, now I really believe, because this prophecy in Ezekiel, if we read Ezekiel chapter 38 in its totality, and then we read Ezekiel chapter 39, in its totality they are not describing consecutive events this is a hebrew parallelism 
it's in the Hebrew language and in the prophets we see this all the time it was common in their writing to describe the same thing in slightly different ways two times consecutively to draw two different pictures of basically the same entity or event now most parallelisms are simply phrases in the same verse or in consecutive verses sentences in consecutive verses but there are in Ezekiel several places where we have parallelisms describing the same exact entity which are quite lengthy another example of that in Ezekiel is the oracles against the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre who are basically the same individual Tyre only had one ruler and both of those prophecies are in reference to the same individual so this isn't unique in Ezekiel it happens elsewhere Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39 are describing the same thing and it's talking about the the last days the the basically the day whereof I have spoken saith the Lord God in Ezekiel 39 8 this is speaking about that day of the Lord that day of wrath where he destroys all of his enemies and it's described in Obadiah in verses 14 15 and 16 it's described in Revelation chapter 19 at great length it's re-summarized in Revelation chapter 20 which we have always um, which we have frequently I should say quoted in in this series and in our beginnings and end series as the camp of the saints scenario where we see Gog and Magog mentioned again and Satan that goes out and gathers all the world's nations against the camp of the saints now not for nothing but that hardly describes Jerusalem that the camp of the saints in a new text in a New Testament context can't possibly describe the apostate Antichrist state of Israeli no the, the Jews are not the camp of the saints in fact the Jews are Satan so Gog, Gog and Magog are the enemies of God and his people. And here in Ezekiel it says, God will bring them forth. So, uh, to my mind, that the so when did this start? Has this process already started? And I think it started several hundred years ago. And we were, me and some of my people were talking about how, that, how we think this has been playing out. And I, I think it started in earnest with the African slave trade because we know that the Jews ran that and we'll, 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 we'll talk about that shortly but here the in Ezekiel it, it's describing a process where the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people are brought forth against God's people against their will and um, you know say what you will about the African slave trade these Africans did not come here willingly, and um, I, I don't think anybody. Um, um, I don't think anybody would dispute that. And even you know, you can find this sort of a take on on 
several different mainstream historical websites and one I one I found uh, the last few days here uh, is called liverpoolmuseums.org.uk and it's the articles entitled life on board slave ships um, and there's a picture there it says Africans being forced to dance on board ship illustration from France Maritime by Crehan MED, uh, courtesy of the Mary Evans Picture Library. Um, article, it's, it's kind of a short article, we'll, we'll go over it here. Um, slave ships spent several months traveling to different parts of the coast, buying their cargo. The, capt the captives were often in poor health from the physical and mental abuse they had suffered. They were taken on board, stripped naked, and examined from head to toe by the captain or surgeon. Conditions on board ship during the Middle Passage were appalling. The men were packed together below deck and were secured by leg irons. Uh, looks in the jaw. Um, the space was so cramped they were forced to crouch or lie down. Women and children were kept in separate quarters, sometimes on deck, allowing them limited freedom of movement. But this also exposed them to violence and sexual abuse from the crew. The air in the hold was foul and putrid. Seasickness was common and the heat was oppressive. Uh, the lack of sanitation and suffocating conditions meant there was a constant threat of disease. Epidemics of fever, dysentery, the flux, and smallpox were frequent. Captives endured these conditions for about two months, sometimes longer. In good weather, the captives were brought on deck in mid-morning and forced to exercise. They were fed twice a day and those refusing to eat were force-fed. Those who died were thrown overboard. The combination of disease, inadequate food, rebellion and punishment took a heavy toll on captives and crew alike. Surviving records suggest that until the 1750s, one in five Africans on board ship died. Some European governments, such as the British and French, introduced laws to control, to control conditions on board. They reduced the numbers of people allowed on board and required a surgeon to be carried. The principal reason for taking action was concern for the crew, not the captives. The surgeons, though often unqualified, were paid head money to keep captives alive. By about 1800, records show that the number of Africans who died had declined to about one in 18. Um, and then they have a link to an article here um, uh, from the uh, autobiography of uh, I'm gonna probably butcher this guy's name. Um, I think his name's uh, Didn't Do Nothing. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Aluda Equiano, um, and this is also again on the LiverpoolMuseums.org.uk um, website. You know, life on board. Um, the first object which saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast was the sea and a slave ship, which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. These filled me with astonishment, which was soon converted to terror when I was carried on board. I was immediately handled and tossed up to see if I was sound by some of the crew, and I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits and they were going to kill me. Their complexion, too differing so much from ours, their long hair and the language they spoke, united to confirm me in this belief. Indeed, there were, indeed, such were horrors, such were the horrors of my views and fears at the moment that, 
If 10,000 worlds had been my own, I would freely have parted with them all to have exchanged my condition with that of the meanest slave in my own country. I was soon put down under the decks, and there I received such a salutation in my nostrils that I have never experienced in my life, so that with the loathsomeness of the stench and the crying together, I became so sick and low that I was not able to eat. Now I wished for the last friend, death, to relieve me, but, so but soon, to my grief, two of the white men offered me eatables, and on my refusing to eat, one of them held me fast by the hands, laid me across, I think the windlass, and tied my feet while the other flogged me severely. <laughs> I had never experienced anything of this kind before, and although not being used to the water, I naturally feared that elements the first time I saw it, yet nevertheless, I could have gotten over the nettings. I would have jumped uh, over the side, but I could not, and besides the crew used to watch us very closely, who were not... Uh, chained to the decks, lest we should leap into the water. And I have seen some of those poor African prisoners most severely cut for attempting to do so, and hourly whipped for not eating. This indeed was often the case with myself. In a little time after, amongst the poor chained men, I found some of my own nation, which in a small degree gave ease to my mind. I asked them if we were uh, not eaten by those white men with horrible looks, red faces, and loose hair. They told me I was not, but still I feared I should be put to death. The white people looked and acted as though I thought, as I thought in so savage a manner, for I had never seen among any people such instances of brutal cruelty, and this not shown towards us blacks, but also to some of the white themselves. One white man in particular I saw flogged so unmercifully with a large rope near the foremast that he died in consequence of it, and they tossed him over the side as they would have done a brute. The stench of the hold um, while we were on the coast was so intolerably loathsome that it was dangerous to remain there for any length of time. And some of us had been permitted to stay on the deck for the fresh air, but now that the whole ship's cargo was confined together, it became absolutely uh, pestilential. Uh, the closeness of the place and the heat of the climate Added to the number in the ship, which was so crowded that each had scarcely room to turn himself, almost suffocated us. This produced copious perspiration, so the air soon became unfit for respiration from a variety of loathsome smells and brought on a sickness amongst the slave, of which many died. This wretched situation was again aggravated by the galling of the chains, now become insupportable, with the filth of the necessary tubs into which the children often fell and were almost suffocated. The shrieks of the women and the groans of the dying rendered the whole scene of the horror almost inconceivable. The, the only thing I have doubt about is words like copious, pestilential, galling. You, you know, I think if we search high and low, we might find three or four Negroes in the whole nation who can define those words. <laughs> and use well, them in a sentence. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I I'm know. Sorry. He probably had a, uh, uh, you know, a, a ghostwriter help him write it. Um, a Jewish ghostwriter, I'm sure. <laughs> I I well, just had to get that in there. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But you know, having said that, I don't think anyone would seriously dispute his claims that it pretty much sucked on board a slave ship. 
Well, well, yeah, there's no doubt, and and I've read that in um, I've read some of those things in contemporary writings by whites. So it it pretty much sucked on board a slave ship. But these people, I I mean, most of the slaves that came over here and and were treated poorly were were in in the early years, in the earliest years of the colonies, were white. That they weren't Negroes at all. They weren't black at all. Most of the slave trade was basically monopolized by Portugal. And and I'd like to give a basic rundown on various colonies and, and when they began to be engaged in the slave trade. Because this is going to fit into my theory on... The, the claims in works such as the secret relationship between blacks and Jews about Jews dominating the slave trade and the disclaimers by the Jews that they were a disproportionate, uh, that they were a small minority of slave traders, which is what they claim. And and I think that um, the Jews are misrepresenting the history of, of the slave trade. That's what I really believe. And first, in, in this, um, a, a breakdown on the colonies, right? B- because I think that this is telling. The Carolinas, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania were all restoration colonies, right? That They were established for England by Charles II after 1660. New York and New Jersey were taken from the Dutch and and um the carolinas were were carolinas weren't really settled sir walter raleigh originally tried to colonize the carolinas and failed and his colony on roanoke island off the coast of north carolina was lost to salva- starvation after that in 1663 the carolinas were granted by charles charles ii as a reward to influential friends who had helped him achieve restoration, and each of them were named as a lord proprietor of part of the territory. They were granted feudal powers to profit from the colony and charged with the responsibility of managing and protecting it in the interests of England. Charles had sought to gain control for England of all the land between Virginia and Spanish Florida. But these proprietors never lived in the Carolinas. Instead, the North was settled by colonists, white colonists, mostly from Virginia, who worked to make pine tar and turpentine for the shipping industry, as well as farming tobacco. But in the South, in what became known as South Carolina, in the South was brought in slave holders and plantation owners from Barbados who established rice and indigo plantations and brought their slaves to work them from Barbados. Because of the large number of slaves, the southern half had a black majority. South Carolina had a black majority by 1715 and laws to regulate slavery were imposed which had first been formulated in Barbados. So there's a huge connection in early South Carolina history between Barbados and South Carolina.
Because of this diversity of settlers and interests, political differences arose, and in 1729 the colony was split in two, north and south. At this time the Lord Proprietors, or their heirs, sold their interest in the colony to the Crown, where it remained until the Revolution. Now, the Crown, after the founding of the Bank of England and the forming of the city in London, the Crown doesn't necessarily refer to only the King. But what's important about the Barbados connection, in my opinion, is that in South Carolina, slavery developed very quickly. But slavery developed, and I can discuss this, slavery developed very slowly in most of the other American colonies. In South Carolina, slavery and profit from slavery was the objective right from the beginning, and there was this direct connection to Barbados. The island of Barbados was first settled by Spanish and Portuguese and also was inhabited by a large number of Jews who fled the Inquisition. During the, and that was the 16th century, during the early English years of occupation from 1627, most of the slaves there were Irish, Scots, and English prisoners. But in 1640, Barbados began to undergo another transformation. In 1640, sugarcane was introduced from Brazil, and that transformed the economy. Now, that sugarcane was introduced by Sephardic Jews from Brazil. And by 1666, most of these small holders, the smallholders, who were mostly white, were bought out. The whites that were left in Barbados were poor, and most of the laborers were African slaves. This introduction of sugarcane in 1640 to Barbados transformed the entire island. The, the entire island. This is the Barbados, dominated by Sephardic Jews, which influenced South Carolina's slave and plantation culture as it began to form after 1663. So we see when the city of Charleston was founded, we have a large Jewish population there, right from the beginning. South Carolina was the leading state in the American colonies in slavery the connection to Barbados and the Sephardic Jews is also a Portuguese connection and the territory of Brazil which was controlled by Portugal and with that I'm gonna read a few paragraphs I'm not gonna read the that the entire thing but I'm going to read the um, from the digital History Project hosted by the Low Country Digital Library at the College of Charleston. So this comes straight from South Carolina, right? I mean, 
establishing the slave trade. <clears throat> in the 15th century, Portugal became the first European nation to take significant part in African slave trading. The Portuguese primarily acquired slaves for labor on Atlantic African island plantations and later for plantations in Brazil and the Caribbean, although they also sent a small number to Europe. Initially, Portuguese explorers attempted to acquire African labor through direct, direct raids along the coast, but they found that these attacks were costly and often ineffective against West and Central African military strategies. These Central African nations were probably all, always were probably already also dominated by Arab Muslims, I'm certain. Skipping ahead just a just a little bit, subsequently Portuguese traders generally abandoned direct combat and established commercial relations with West and Central African leaders who agreed to sell slaves taken from various African wars or domestic trading, as well as gold and other commodities in exchange for European and North African goods. Over time, the Portuguese developed additional slave labor, I'm sorry, slave trade partnerships with African leaders along the West and Central African coast and claimed a monopoly over these relationships, which initially limited access to the trade for other Western European competitors. Despite Portuguese claims, African leaders enforced their own local laws and customs in negotiating trade relations. Many welcomed additional trade with Europeans from other nations but that don't mean it happened. When Portuguese and later their European competitors found that peaceful commercial relations alone did not generate enough enslaved Africans to fill the growing demands of the transatlantic slave trade, they formed military alliances with certain African groups against their enemies. So they're trading with, with each group with their, their competitive tribes, their competing tribes. This encouraged more extensive warfare to produce captives for trading. While European-backed Africans had their own political or economic reasons for fighting with other African enemies, the end result for European traders in these military alliances was great access to enslaved war captives. To a lesser extent, Europeans also pursued African colonization to secure access to slaves and other goods. For example, the Portuguese colonized portions of Angola in 1571 with the help of military alliances from Congo, but were pushed out in 1591 by their former allies. During this early period, African leaders and European competitors ultimately prevented these attempts at African colonization from becoming as extensive as in the Americas. The Portuguese dominated the early transatlantic slave trade on the African coast in the 16th century. As a result, other European nations first gained access to enslaved Africans through privateering during wars. Privateering. In other words, the other European nations really didn't have any access unless their pirates raided Portuguese ships. 
As a result, other European nations first gained access to enslaved Africans through privateering during wars with the Portuguese, rather than through direct trade. When English, Dutch, or French privateers captured Portuguese ships during Atlantic maritime conflicts, they often found enslaved Africans on these ships as well as Atlantic trade goods, and they sent these captives to work in their own colonies. Now, from what I understand, and from what I found today, the first black slaves in Virginia were brought by English pirates who pillaged a Spanish slave's ship in 1619. But up to 1650, there were only a few hundred Negroes in all of Virginia, and that included West Virginia at the time. Until the end of the century, there were many times more white indentured servants in Virginia than there were ever Negro slaves. In 1660, there were fewer than a thousand slaves in Virginia and Maryland. But during the 1680s, their number tripled, rising from about 4,500 to 12,000 in Virginia and Maryland. About 80% of them were in Virginia, which reportedly had 10,000 slaves in 1704. That is when laws governing relationships between whites and Negroes began to be formulated. Slavery took hold in New England more quickly than it did in Virginia. The first slaves probably arrived from the West Indies in 1638. In short time, Boston became a slave trading center. The French Huguenot Peter Faniel is one such wealthy trader. By 1676, Massachusetts merchants started buying slaves in Madagascar and selling them to Virginians, but that was only possible because the Portuguese slave trading monopoly began to dissolve at that time. So, merchants from New England were able to begin purchasing slaves directly and sell them in both New England and Virginia, but the primary market seems to have been Virginia. Boston was surpassed by Newport, Rhode Island and Bristol, Connecticut by the middle of the 1700s. Rhode Island merchants began importing African slaves by 1652, but they greatly increased the trade around 1700, and we have to ask why. Newport and Bristol, by the middle of the 18th century, had overtaken Boston as the leading slave market in the colonies. In 98 years, between 1709 and 1807, Rhode Island merchants are said to have brought more than 100,000 slaves from Africa to the New World. Now, this rapid increase in the New England slave trade was also, it had to be, indirectly assisted by the New England clergy. In 1699, now the, the New England slave trade took off in 1700. In 1699, where it was rather minuscule before 1700. In 1699, I'm sorry, the third time, the third generation Boston pastor, Cotton Mather, informed New Englanders that the Puritan ministers of the Boston area no longer regarded usury as a sin. Meeting at the Cambridge Synod, 
They had determined that usury, or an advance on anything lent by contract, was legitimate by the divine law of the Old Testament, given countenance in the New Testament, and justified by necessity and utility, mandated by the ethical principle of equity, regarded by the philosophical meaning of money itself, and congruent with the moral law of charity. How now now tell me that there weren't tell me that Samuel and Moses Hayes weren't behind that. Tell me that Jews weren't behind that. Because as soon as this as soon as these New England pastors accepted usury, the slave trade took off. Now, Virginia didn't legalize usury until 1730. North Carolina until 1741. The first black slaves in Virginia were supposedly brought by English pirates who pillaged a Spanish slave ship in 1619. But up to 1650, there were only a few hundred Negroes in all Virginia. It took off. It started to rise during the 1680s, and it took off after 1704. And Virginia already had 10,000 slaves by then. Now, North Carolina has a quite different history from South Carolina, where it was settled with mostly settlers from Virginia who, who worked for themselves. What with at first, right? The slavery came a little later, but it's definitely, without doubt, the Portuguese and pirates from England and Holland and 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 France and other nations that kicked off the slave trade, and it's this Portuguese slave trade that's where what got the ball rolling, and that was basically. Um, dominated by these Sephardic Jews. Yeah, there's no question that Jews dominated the slave trade. Now, we'll we'll touch on uh, what the Jewish take on all this is, you know, shortly. But um, I just wanted to go over, uh, you know, a few paragraphs here from uh, the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, put out by our friends over at the Nation of Islam. And I know you're a big fan of their work, Bill. Um. Yeah. I mean, I know this book's been around a long time. No, I've never read it. Yes, I saw hundreds of copies of it in prison in the hands of both whites and Negroes. But I've never had the care to read it. Um, I, I think it's it's based in fact, even though it does ignore some facts, but it's based in fact. It, its facts are pertinent and much more accurate when we consider the early stages of the slave trade and not necessarily the later ones. Because the later ones, the English and, and, and the white um, merchants were definitely in on it and, and attempting to capitalize on it. But it's the Jews and, and, and the Portuguese that got the whole thing started. Well, absolutely, and, and yeah, and neither one of us are saying that white Christian men weren't involved in the slave trade. They obviously were, but this whole enterprise was started and dominated by Jews. They and, they devised it. They devised yeah. it. They figured it out. They got it kicked off. So here's the um, here's the introduction to the secret relationship between blacks and Jews. 
Um, I, I downloaded the PDF, and if, if people Google it, they can they can find it online for free. Um, this book came out in 1991 um, by Lewis. It's credited to Lewis Farrakhan. I don't know if he wrote the whole thing or researched all of it. He probably had some help somewhere, but um, be that as it may, here, here's what the text says. Um, Throughout history, Jews have faced charges of economic exploitation of Gentile communities around the world. Indeed, no single group of people have faced blanket expulsion in so many places around the world as frequently as have the Jews. The pattern and the charges are familiar. Monopolization, usury, sharp practices, selling cheap goods, frequent bankruptcies, etc., all such claims seem to preface the expulsion orders and are vigorously denied by both those chart by by those charged and by the Jewish writers of history. Um, but this is not the only charge that is made against the Jews. Jews have been conclusively linked to the greatest criminal endeavor ever undertaken against an entire race of people. And I guess I would beg to differ with this, but we'll just go ahead and read on here. A crime against humanity the black African Holocaust. Well, I would, I, I would even disagree that it's a crime against humanity. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would. This is, <laughs> but we'll, we'll uh, let that lay for a. Uh, the, the real crime is taking all these beasts out of the jungle and dumping them in these white colonies. That's the real crime. Yeah, that's and and we'll we will get to that before the show is over. Um, they were participants in the entrapment and forcible exportation of millions of black African citizens, well, they couldn't really be considered citizens, into the wretched and inhuman life of bondage for the financial benefit of Jews. Now, that part is true. Uh, the effects of this unspeakable tragedy are still being felt among the peoples of the world at this very hour, and that is also true. Um, deep within the recesses of the Jewish historical record are the irrefutable evidence that the most prominent of the uh, Jewish pilgrim fathers used kidnapped black Africans disproportionately more than any other ethnic or religious group in New World history and participated in every aspect of the international slave trade. The immense wealth of Jews, as with most of the white colonial fathers, was acquired by the brutal subjugation of black Africans purely on the basis of skin color, a concept unfamiliar to Moses. Now, compiled for the first time, the Jewish sources reveal the extent of their complicity in black slavery in the most graphic of terms. Uh, until now, the facts herein were known only to a few. Most have always assumed that the relationship between blacks and Jews has been mutually supportive, friendly, and fruitful. The two suffering people bonding to overcome hatred and bigotry to achieve success. But history tells us an altogether different story. This report will focus on the hidden history of blacks and Jews from the Jewish historical record. Rabbi Henry Cohen, author of the book Justice, Justice, makes a telling point. The parallels between the Nazi terror and the American slave trade are more startling than we may realize. When Negroes were brought from the heart of Africa to the American South, one-third died and wrote, uh, to the African coast, and one-third died in the suffocating prisons on board ship. Once here, families were purposely broken up, husbands, wives, and children forced to go their separate ways. Must we be reminded of the death toll in the suffocating boxcars bound for Auschwitz, or of the 
tearing of children from their mother's arms, which we would disagree with the Holocaust narrative thereby. Um, the, I, the I would also rabbi. have to agree that uh, I would have to disagree that skin color is a concept unfamiliar to Moses. Yeah, well, yeah, well, <laughs> we would beg to differ with that as well. Yeah, sounds like a Jew wrote this too, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. Uh, furthermore, in Roberta Strauss, uh, Felix, the fate of the Jews, a people torn between Israeli power and Jewish ethics. She confronts the reality of her people's Western development. Whether so many Southern Jews would have achieved a high level of social, political, and economic and intellectual status and recognition without the presence of the lowly and degraded slave is indeed dubious. How ironic that the distinctions bestowed upon Jewish men like Judah P. Benjamin were in some measure dependent upon the sufferings of the Negro slaves they, they bought and sold with such equanimity. It is a relationship that needs further analysis, one that is not fully known. Hidden and misunderstood, it is indeed time to reopen the files to review and consider the secret relationship between blacks and Jews. Judah P. Benjamin, right? I mean, what's he, a boogeyman? He, he was the... He was a Louisiana legislature, I, legislator, I think, and, and he was the um, Secretary of the Treasury for the Confederacy. Of course, every white nation has to have its Judas, right? Well, well um, you know, the, one of the biggest slave trading families in the South, from, from the same place, Louisiana, it, is the Monsanto family. How did they miss that? Yeah, that, that wasn't covered here, um, but Judah P. Benjamin's also a, a infamous figure in the American Civil War. Um, well, yeah, right. I said he was the um, Secretary yeah. of the Treasury for the South, for the Confederacy. Yeah, yeah, and we won't have time to uh, cover that in this show tonight, but um, I thought I'd read a little bit more here from the, from the PDF. Um, this is called uh, Jews in the African Slave Trade. Um, page 10 of the PDF. Um, Throughout the history of the practice, Jews have been involved in the purchase and sale of human beings. This fact is confirmed by their own scholars and historians. In his book, A History of the Jews, Solomon Grazel states that Jews were among the most important slave dealers in European society. Lady Magnus writes that in the Middle Ages, the principal purchasers of slaves were found among the Jews. They seem to always be everywhere at hand to buy and have the means equally ready to pay. Henry L. Feingold stated that Jews who were frequently found at the heart of commerce could not have failed to contribute to a proportionate share of the slave trade directly or indirectly. In 1460, when Jews were the masters of the nautical sciences in Portugal, a nation that was importing 700 to 800 slaves yearly. Uh, the success of these medieval merchants was enhanced by their supreme linguistic abilities. They spoke Arabic, Persian, Roman, Frankish, Spanish, and Slovak, Slavonic, and displayed a business acumen far in advance of the times. The Jews' participation in the slave trade, particularly their traffic in non-Jewish slaves, incited moral indignation of Europe's Gentile population. The Europeans reacted by taxing the Jews, and some were expelled from their host countries for this activity. Um, 
The expulsion of Jews by European governments was not unusual, with most of the complaints centered around economic exploitation, monopolizing, or sharp practice. By 1500, uh, with the exception of certain parts of Italy, Western Europe had closed its doors to Jewish people. The following is a listing of is a partial record of the countries and dates of the Jews' expulsion from various European communities. And it goes on to list probably 30 locales where Jews were booted from. And, you know, it's, this is a, a, a list I, I, I'm sure most of our listeners would be familiar with. Um, and over the next centuries, the centers of Jewish development moved into Western Hemisphere where they could, uh, where land and commercial properties provided the incentives for immigration. The open and ungoverned territory and the docile and vulnerable native population offered an irresistible attraction to the maligned race. They acquired great wealth in their uh, Caribbean and South American enterprises and eventually moved into the American North, which became the economic focal point. It started with the forced expulsion of the Jews from the Spanish Empire and with the early explorer and discoverer of America, Christopher Columbus. Wow. I just found a whole book, Jews in the American Slave Trade, which attempts to refute the secret relationship between blacks and Jews. It's by one Saul Friedman, or something like that. Yeah, and, and the, the PDF goes on to talk about uh, Columbus possibly being Jewish himself, and... Uh, well, that's been long speculated. Yeah, and in fact, I, I suppose I could go over that here. Um, so the next section is Columbus, Jews, and the slave trade. Not jewels, but Jews were the real financial basis of the first expedition of Columbus. On August 2nd, 1492, more than 300,000 Jews were expelled from Spain, ending their five-century involvement in the black hostage trade in that region. In fact, the Spanish Jews amassed large fortunes dealing in Christian slaves and became quite prominent within Spain's hierarchy. They had obtained the most important offices and positions of trust in the cabinets and the counting houses of rulers and had maintained great influence over the regional trade, causing many to believe that the Jews exercised an unhealthy domination over the economy of the region. The rulers were convinced enough to order all Jews to either convert to Christ or leave Spain. And then they go on to talk about uh, the Muranos, the secret Jews. And you covered this extensively a few years ago in your Jews in Europe series, which is, if, if people haven't listened to that, they really need to, to, to download that and listen to those, those podcasts. Um, we'll just go over this quick. Um, so the Muranos, the secret Jews. The Muranos were those compulsory converted Jews and their descendants who outwardly became Christians but secretly continued to meet in the synagogue, celebrated feast days, and observed the Jewish Sabbath. The name Murano may be derived from the old uh, uh, Castilian Murano, or swine, or perhaps from the Arabic Maharan, uh, or forbidden. In 1350, Spain began a series of conversion drives to convert to convert all Jews in Spain to Christianity. Uh, see the section entitled The Spanish Inquisition. And in unprecedented numbers and with little resistance, the Jews converted. This rush to mass conversion 
an event unparalleled in Jewish history, is perhaps best summed up by Cecil Roth. It was not difficult for insincere, 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 temporizing Jews to become insincere, temporizing Christians. The Moranos, also called conversos, or the converted, or uh, the nefidi, the neophytes, or new Christians, were simply charged with not being Catholic. The same applied to the Muslims who were expelled in like manner and in greater numbers, numbers than the Jews. Some 50,000 Jews chose to convert rather than leave their land and their riches. Um, contrary to popular notions, those who left were not refugees searching for religious freedom, but entrepreneurs looking for economic opportunities. When they fled, they brought few Torah scrolls and even fewer copies of the Jewish holy book Talmud with them. When asked what he thought about what when asked what he thought most Moranos knew of Judaism after their flight from Spain and Portugal, Roth answered in one word, nothing. The majority fled south and eastward to North Africa um, and to centers like uh, Salonika, Constantinople, Aleppo, and Damascus. Others sought and found refuge in the Netherlands where they established synagogues, schools, cemeteries, and a high level of wealth and culture. Most escaped with considerable sums of money, though scattered throughout the globe by political, economic, and religious circumstances. They would reunite later in an unholy uh, coalition of kidnappers and slave makers. And, you know, there's a lot to cover with uh, the, uh, uh, the Murano Jews. Um, um, there's a lot of speculation that the Rockefellers were actually Murano Jews. Well, well, absolutely. You could speculate and, and talk about Morano Jews for probably indefinitely in, and their effect on American and European history. There's no doubt. And and that that's um, you, you know, you like to start. Uh, okay, I really think that the The dispersion of, of Jews out of Spain and Portugal seems to have accelerated all this as they first went to Holland and the ones that didn't go to Holland, the ones that couldn't flee to the New World, to, to Brazil and the islands of the Caribbean. You, you know, Brazil, th this is interesting. The word Aruba, the island Aruba, that word's a Hebrew word. It means a trading emporium. The word Brazil. Now, Brazil happens to have some of the largest iron ore deposits in the world, and you could look that up, it's true. And the word Brazil, I am convinced, comes from the Hebrew word Barzel, which means iron. Why else would the Portuguese call it Brazil? They had large numbers of Sephardic Jews with them in their trips to the New World and their settlement of the New World and those Sephardic Jews helped to drive. They were the primary driving force behind that Portuguese slave trade and we just read from a college in Charleston itself that the Portuguese dominated the slave trade for the first um, 150-200 years of its, its existence. They dominated it. So that's where the Jews dominated the slave trade. Now, 
English Dutch pirates could obtain slaves and sell them in the Americas, but the Jews got the whole ball rolling. There's no doubt. There's an alt-right history of the United States on, on a website at Weebly.com, which has a good um, slave trade article that um, doesn't really rely on anything found in the Nation of Islam literature. I'm not saying the Nation of Islam literature is entirely inaccurate. I just don't, I think it could have been presented better. And if it was presented better, if it was presented more accurately, it would, the, the Jews wouldn't be able to tear into it as easily. In, in other words, it, it may sound well written, but it's not well organized. That's my opinion. The, the Jews um, go to the raw numbers. These, the, these Jewish articles that attempt to refute the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, they just go to the raw numbers and try to claim that Jews are a very small minority of the overall slave trade. Well, that may have been true in the later years, after the English and the Dutch and, and, and some of the other nations got in on the trade openly, after they were able to access the source of slaves in Africa. That might be true, but it's not true in those early centuries of the trade. Of the, of the slave trade. It's not true at all. Jews definitely dominated that. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, 40% of Jews in, in, in the U.S. South own slaves. And a lot of those families own more than five slaves. And, and a, a big chunk of them own more than 50, you know, the big plantation owners. A lot of those were Jewish. Right. There's a, a lot of um, prominent... Jewish families that were involved in a heavily involved in the slave trade, and they were also heavily involved in a lot of other um, major economic business in the early American colonies, like the first central bank and stuff like that. That that was the um, the Franks family of Philadelphia, the Hayes family of Boston was a Jewish family involved in the slave trade, and and they were also the some of the most notable early patrons of the Christian Harvard University. And and you can't tell me that they didn't influence the curriculum and, and what was going on at Harvard. I also believe they had a great influence over Cotton Mather. I, I mean, <laughs> I can't help but suspect these things when all these men are in bed together, uh, are, have political affiliations together. The, the, um, I'll, I'll read one line from this alt-right history to U.S. One short paragraph. According to an interview given by Orthodox Rabbi Lodi Van de Kamp to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the JTA, we see them on the internet all the time, newspaper on December 26, 2013. Money was earned by Jewish communities in South America, partly through slavery, and went to Holland, where Jewish bankers handled it. In one area of what used to be Dutch Guyana, 40 Jewish-owned, now Dutch Guyana is a rather small um, slice of, I believe, central or northern South America on the Atlantic coast, 40 Jewish-owned plantations were home to a total population of at least 5,000 slaves, he says. 
known as the Jodin Savan or Jewish Jewish Savannah. The area had a Jewish community of several hundred before its destruction in a slave uprising in 1832. Nearly all of them immigrated to Holland, bringing their accumulated wealth with them. So, so that's just one um, small remark on, on the Jews in the slave trade in South America coming from a Jew himself. The slave trade in South America and Central America was much larger than that in and, and the Caribbean was much larger than the slave trade in the American colonies and it was definitely dominated by Jews. The English didn't really get in on South America. Never. <laughs> didn't happen. Thankfully. Yeah, the secret relationship between blacks and Jews covers the South American slave trade pretty extensively. And that's not a topic we'll you know, really uh, hit on tonight. Yeah, as you said, now, Jews, of course, you know, being Satan, they've tried to minimize or deflect the criticism of their role in the slave trade. And, you know, as you had mentioned, I, this is an article I'm familiar with as well. Um, it's on myjewishlearning.com. Um, it's titled Jews in the African Slave Trade. Uh, like many others, Jews participated in the transatlantic slave trade, but they by no means dominated it. So here we're trying to cover some Jewish well, butt. Well, right. When you look at this article, when you just scan the article, look at the dates, right? It, it's talking about how many Jews in Charleston owned slaves in 1790. It, it's yeah. talking about um, Alexander Lindo in the late 18th century, right? It, it's it's giving late dates. It's concentrating on the late dates because, admittedly, by those late dates, the English, who controlled the American colonies, and other nations in South America and the Caribbean dominated the slave trade. It wasn't the Jews of Portugal and Spain any longer. But it's the early centuries that matter. Who got this started? Who started all this? Who, who began going to Africa and, and conquering or, or kidnapping or buying slaves and bringing them here in the first place? And when you look at the early centuries, it's all Murano Jews now, or, or, or Sephardic Jews. Now, in those late dates, the Jews still had a significant role. The Jewish families in the colonies still had a significant role, but they dominated it in the early centuries. Yeah, and I'll just go over this article quick for, uh, for uh, posterity's sake. Um, the role that some Jews played in the Atlantic slave trade, both as traders and slave owners, has long been acknowledged by historians. But allegations in recent decades that Jews played a disproportionate role in the enslavement of African Americans and that this fact has been covered up have made the topic a controversial one. Those who make the case, who make this case include Louis Farrakhan, leader of the Nation of Islam, and David Duke, the former Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard. Uh, a search for Jews and slave trade on YouTube pulls up more than 50,000 videos, most posted by the Nation of Islam. Duke and their supporters. Mm. Mainstream scholars, for the most part, do not accept their conclusions and see the charges as essentially anti-Semitic. 
Did Jews really own slaves? Yes. Jacob Rader Marcus, a historian and reform rabbi, wrote in his four-volume history of Americans' Jews that over 75% of Jewish families in Charleston, South Carolina, Richmond, Virginia, and Savannah, Georgia owned slaves, and nearly 40% of Jewish households across the country did. The Jewish population in these cities was quite small, however, so the total number of slaves they owned represented just a small fraction of the total slave population. Eli Faber, a historian at New York City's John Jay College, reported that in 1790, like, like you said, a later date, Charleston's Jews owned a total of 30, or 93 slaves, and that perhaps six Jewish families lived in Savannah in 1771. But we just saw an alternate testimony from a Jew saying that in Dutch Guyana, only 40 Jewish-owned plantations owned 5,000 slaves. And that was 100 years... That, that was in um, 1832, so it's a little after this, that the slave uprising um, caused that to end. A number of wealthy Jews were also involved in the slave trade in the Americas, as some, some as ship owners who imported the slaves, and others as agents who resold them. In the United States, Isaac DaCosta of Charleston, David Franks of Philadelphia, and Aaron Lopez of Newport, Rhode Island, are among the early American Jews who were prominent in the importation and sale of African slaves. In addition, some Jews were involved in the trade in various European Caribbean colonies. Alexander Lindo, a French-born Jew who became a wealthy merchant in Jamaica in the late 18th century, was a major seller of slaves on the island. Another late date. Yeah, and yeah, they don't talk about anything in the 1600s here, do they? No. Uh, did Jews dominate the slave trade? Not according to scholars that have closely examined the question. Several studies of the Jewish role in the slave trade were conducted in the 1990s. One of them by John J.'s Faber compared the available data on the Jewish slave ownership and trading activity in British territories in the 18th century, yeah, 18th century, so the 1700s, to that of the wider population. Faber concludes that the claim of Jewish domination is false and that the Jewish role in slavery was exceedingly limited. According to Faber, British Jews were always in the minority of investors in slaving operations that were not known to have been among the primary owners of slave fleets. Faber found that, with few exceptions, Jews were minor figures in, in brokering the sale of slaves upon their arrival in the Americas, and given the urban dwelling propensity of most American Jews, few accumulated large rural properties and plantations where slave labor was most concentrated. According to Faber, Jews were more likely than non-Jews to own slaves, but on average they owned fewer of them. Well, well all that is not really inaccurate. It, it's fairly accurate of the 18th century. Because by the 18th century, the slave trading business, even though there were a lot of prominent Jews in on it, the slave trading business really took off in, in Massachusetts and Virginia and the... the um, the ratio of Englishmen in on it was much higher, was much greater. But that's America only. That's the, the American colonies, the English colonies only. That still doesn't account for what's going on in South America. Yeah, they, they don't talk at all about that. 
Um, no, so this is a very dishonest refutation. The, the, the Nation of Islam book is not well constructed because it didn't give appropriate um, time frames, points of reference, um, discuss or break down the geography from what I've just seen, right? I, I haven't read the whole book and I won't. But it would have been much more effective if it did those things. And it would have been much harder for these Jew propagandists to try to refute or deny. That's my opinion. Yeah, so like you, your, your, your assertion, and which was backed up by your sources, is that, and, and, and this, is, this is true, the, the, the slave trade really got going in the mid-1600s. No, the mid fifteen hundreds in, in yeah. South America. Yeah, and in, into into North America, and, and the mid sixteen hundreds into North America. Yeah, so you know, in the United States, where we we see you know white Christian Israelites, it was the the mid sixteen hundreds. Yeah. Well, right. If there were any white Christian Israelites with the Portuguese and Spaniards in South America, and there probably were. They were probably bred out of existence by the mid 1600s. Yeah. So mainly, what we're we're focusing on here is you know the United States, um, which was founded by people of European descent or Israelite people. Well, right. The Northern Europeans in North America. What would be. Um, of, of of course, a lot wider, a much higher ratio of, of of real white people than the Spaniards and Portuguese in South America, which would have had a large Jewish and a large Arab population mixed in with it. Yeah, there's more Jews in Argentina than than I had previously thought. Uh, a couple of years ago, I came across some articles on that, and there is a there's a pretty substantial Jewish population in Argentina and, and in South America. I remember reading a, um, a Wall Street Journal article years ago, and it quoted a Brazilian appliance store owner, and his name was like, I, I don't remember his name, but it was kind of like Solomon Rivera or something like that, right? <laughs> It was pretty funny, right? It it was the Wall Street Journal. Every expert they dig up is a Jew, even when they got to get them out of South America. <laughs> yeah, another uh, coincidence. Yes, no doubt. So, so going back to Ezekiel, then, um, so it talks about um, how these these people will come and and. And verse 16 here of uh, Ezekiel chapter 38. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. And as, as you described, the, the arrival of, of Africans in the, in the mid-1600s onto this continent was, what, what did you say, 100,000 of them? Oh, that was just in, in brought into Rhode Island. Brought in, just brought, into Rhode Island, yeah. In, in a 90-year period or something like that, yeah. So that was a whole ton of them as a cloud to cover the land. And it shall be in the later days, and I will bring thee against my land, that my nations may know me, 
or I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. I would bet the that the you know I don't know how what the total number of slaves is I don't know what the the mainstream estimates are, but I would bet the total number brought in was probably a million. I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah, and what's what's the African American population in the United States today? Yeah, you know they constantly claim it's twelve percent. I know that if you go to South Carolina, it'll seem like it's ninety nine percent. In, in at least some places, I mean, there's places, cities along the coast that are still fairly white, especially like up towards Myrtle Beach. But if you go to the interior of South Carolina, it's like the dark continent. It's yeah, incredibly and, you know, black. Alabama and Georgia. Um, um, parts of southern Alabama are very black. Um, larger parts of, of Georgia around Atlanta are very black. Mississippi is even blacker. Yeah, parts of the Deep South are extremely black. Um, and, and I really swear that, you know, growing up in, in New Jersey and only seeing Negroes in the big cities, and none when, when I was growing up, it's different now, but none in, in any of the small towns or countryside... I could believe that the population of blacks was only 12.5%, but having been all around the eastern part of the country now in, in my adult life, it's kind of hard to fathom that Negroes aren't grossly undercounted. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure they're undercounted by the census because they don't they don't have temporary or they don't have permanent residences for the most part. They kind of drift around and they, they go, where are you staying, man? It's not where do you live. They don't have a permanent address. Well, I'm staying here or I'm staying there. They, you know, they get a temporary job somewhere. If that comes to an end, then they either get on assistance or try to find a job somewhere else and they crash at somebody else's house. There was actually a popular Negro pop song about that in the 70s. Papa was a rolling stone. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And and that yep. is true of a, of a vast number of them. So I, I'm sure they're not accurately counted. Um, um, and back to Ezekiel, so uh, in, in 30, Ezekiel 38, uh, verse 13. Um, so Sheba and Dedan um, and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee art thou come to take a spoil hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey to carry away silver and gold and to take away cattle and goods to take a great spoil so that that uh, in, you know in a previous show we had, we had talked about you know the cost of black and Hispanic America um, so, over the course of an average 79-year lifespan, a white person, a white individual contributes a net $220,805 to the, the U.S. federal government, whereas over the course of an average 75-year lifespan, a black individual receives a net of 751200 So, these so-called former slaves are in reality... Uh, consuming, they're getting huge bounty and, and taking spoils. 
Well, well, absolutely. I, I mean, they're they're raping us dry. I mean, before Johnson's Great Society, I think the average American family paid about five percent of its income in income taxes. Yeah, and that that has skyrocketed now to forty percent. Um, Plus, we have a great plethora of hidden taxes now that we didn't have in in the 1960s, 1950s. The civil oh, yeah. rights, the, after the civil rights movement and, and Johnson's Great Society, the welfare state just exploded. And the civil rights movement precipitated that. Yeah, we'll, and we'll cover that in a future show. That's definitely on the uh, docket. And... Um, and Ezekiel, uh, one other, uh, uh, yeah, and so back to Ezekiel 38, uh, verse 21. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. And that could refer to blacks killing each other. And um, one of my favorite websites that I check probably weekly or, you know, multiple times in a week is heyjackass.com. Um, this this gives you the pretty much the up-to-date murder statistics in Chicago. Um, so September to date, you know, and as you stated, this is the show is being recorded on September 8th, 2018. September to date, shot and killed 10, shot and wounded 39, total shot 49, total homicides 12. Um, year to date in Chicago, shot and killed 343, shot and wounded 1,776, total shot 2,119, total homicides 402. Um, so in Chicago, a person is shot every two hours and 50 minutes, and a person is murdered every 14 hours and 57 minutes. In Chicago, and this is all in the black neighborhoods, and um, it's basically just a bloodbath in south, the south side of Chicago, the south and the west. Well, let me run this run this down real quick. Gog, what we could establish, and I believe I did argue in my book on the Revelation in Christstrike, that Gog basically represents the international Jew. Gog from the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, Meshech and Tubal aren't coming here. Meshech and Tubal are only helping us to identify Gog. And here we can identify Gog as the Ashkenazi Jew, the, the Russian Jews that came into Europe and, and then came over to um, well, well, to America, in, in, to the Americas in large numbers. So, after that we have Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them. And Ethiopia and Libya represent Africa, and Persia represents basically what we have today of these street shitters, these sand niggers. Gomer and Togarma and and this is the Arab world, Gomer, Togarma, um, Sheba, and Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish. Well, the merchants of Tarshish 
in the later days, in the last days, I would have to equate with the Sephardic Jews. Jews. This, the, the merchant Tarshish is in southern Spain, and, and it, it was a, an area in what we know today as southern Spain on the Mediterranean coast, and that's where the Jews had settled in very large numbers, and got along just swell with the Arabs that they invited into Spain and Portugal in, in order to try to overrun it, to Islamize Europe. And eventually they were rejected, but they never really left there. And the Jews never left there. The Arab government was rejected, What was ejected. Their armies were, were, were sent back to Africa, or driven back to Africa, but that they really didn't leave there. So these merchants of Tarshish, with Sheba and Dadan, that's the Arab world with the Sephardic Jews if we have to attempt to identify these people historically in historic times who they would be today so that's who yeah, we see so exactly we're seeing Gog you know the, the Jew bringing in the hordes up against the people of Israel well right and a great num a great part of those hordes are definitely these the, these um, Negroes that have been brought here in the slave trade and, and another thing that what we're missing in, in a defense of the um, idea that Jews dominated the slave trade, another portion that we're still missing is that the Dutch bankers, we're in an era where very, very few Christians are usurers. Very, very few Christians are bankers. There are more in England, probably, than, 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 than in Holland at this time in the 1700s because the focus of Sephardic Jewish banking had shifted from Portugal to Holland after the Inquisition and then to England in the time of Cromwell and even though a lot of English bankers were in league a lot of the landed nobility in England went into the banking business and they were in league with these Jews. From the time of the wars, the Napoleonic Wars, the, the banking in England was absolutely dominated by the Rothschilds. And they had a huge hand. Those bankers in England did have a huge hand in, in financing these... these um, Oh, yeah. These ships and these companies that drove the slave trade in the 17th and 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 in the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm sorry, in in the 18th and 19th centuries. So that this um, it, it's more than just the Jews of Portugal. I have it. It would take me a long time to do all the research I would need to do to get to the bottom of the slave trade. But there's a lot of things here that these Jews trying to defend themselves in, in these articles aren't telling us. Well, yeah, and like it says in the protocols, they will rewrite history for their benefit. And that's what they're doing over on My Jewish Learning is cherry picking, you know, some some numbers and some dates that try to put a better spin on the Jewish you know, angle on all this. Well, right. And that's why they stayed to those late dates. 
Yeah, because the Jews have now flipped the script and they're trying to glorify these Africans that a few centuries ago they were enslaving them and whipping them and throwing them overboard with no, not even a second thought. But now Black Lives Matter and really what, 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 what the blacks were brought here for was to destroy white Christian civilization. That's why they were really brought here. It wasn't to plant cotton or sugar cane. It's to destroy white civilization. That's why they're here. Well, well, that's the underlying um, spiritual reason, right? I, I mean, the, the surface reason is that they were brought here to plant tobacco and cotton. But, but the underlying spiritual underlying spiritual reason is that Yahweh God knew that we were going to sin and when we did sin that he was going to use these beasts in order to chastise us and and yes. that's why these beasts are here in order to chastise sinful sinful whites and when we finally do repent because at some point we will have to repent and cease from all this worldly sin that our communities are engaging in and and we're seeing that polarization go on right now where, where there's no more middle ground in politics it, it's um simply two sides at each other's throats and we're, we're seeing this polarization polarization process I hope it continues I pray it continues well, well um, when we finally do repent, then all of these aliens are going to be destroyed. But it's not going to happen until we repent. Yeah, that, that's what I was, That's to sum this all up, that's what I was going to say. What this prophecy is, is telling us is that God is going to bring these people up against us. So there's, there's, two, there's two processes going on. One, we're being chastised, but... Eventually, there's also a process going on that destroys all of these beasts. They're they're being brought here to die, basically. Well, well we That's, see in Ezekiel that they're going to destroy one another to a great extent. Yeah, and, and we're seeing that play out right now on the streets of Chicago, on the streets of Baltimore, on the streets of East St. Louis, in Detroit. Uh, well, North Minneapolis. We can believe uh, it because we see how quickly they kill kill one another. Yeah, and and had they not been chained up on these ships, they you know stuck in the in the hole down there, they would have been killing each other on the ship for the most part. Not only did they want to run away and jump overboard, they would have been killing each other too. I mean, they're they're basically just feral beasts, you know. That's why they were. They couldn't produce anything. That's why. Um, that's why their African leaders sold them out. Is because these beasts couldn't produce anything that they could trade. So in order for the African Kang to get goods from Europe, like rum, whiskey, and firearms, he had to sell out his own people to Jews, and they gladly did that. So we see 
Jews involved in this thing from start to finish. And while the kind of the the, the like like you said the the angle they want to portray is this was an economic benefit. It's kind of like illegal immigration today. We need okay. Well, what I the article I saw today on Breitbart was the angle of well, okay, Trump, we'll give you your wall, but the Republicans then want uh, to double like legal low skilled uh, immigrants. So well, if you do that, what's the point in the wall? So. Business is saying, well, hey, we need this cheap labor. Um, meanwhile, all these uh, Aztecs and Mestizos that are overrunning us from the south are really destroying the country. These corporations don't care about the social costs of these beasts. They just want cheap labor. Absolutely not. That they don't that that's the folly of, of this corporatism that we live in is that the state, the people, are taxed in order to pay um, welfare payments, um, medical expenses, all of the social expenses for these large minority populations while the corporations use the large minority populations as a cheap labor pool. Yeah, so so whites, gonna... white what white the white um, middle and lower classes lower classes are paying at both ends. Yes, we're we're subsidizing <laughs> our own replacement and murder. Right. Um you know, how, how much how much in food is you know how much in assistance did the guy that killed Molly Tibbetts how much did he get off the public dole you know well I have no so, lost love for Molly Tibbetts I have no sorrow for Molly Tibbetts but that's another story but that's yeah, okay. but she's an example be, she's a good example yeah there's gonna be a lot more of those and there's there's already a whole ton of them I mean they're these invaders from the south are here to rape and pillage and take a spoil Right, Molly Just, T Molly Tibbetts basically paid the price for her own insolence. Yeah, she, she hated whites. The, she was yeah, a lib that, she was that, a libtard. Pretty much, yeah. So she she got to reap what she sowed, but also the uh, uh, ICE raided that company that 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 uh, Spick worked for this week, uh, Yerby Farms. So I, I kind of enjoyed seeing that headline. <laughs> okay. Those guys need they they needed a little visit from ice. So um so what what are we seeing here? We're seeing civilization um being put really basically pushed to the brink. So in Revelation it tells us that eventually the system is so flawed that it's going to collapse. And by importing all of these low IQ uh mud people and and apes from Africa um, we're going to we're, we're seeing the national IQ drop and in California they're already below the tipping point um, here in Texas we're very close and there's a bunch of states in the south that are getting very close to that so what well, we know oh. <laughs> the, the, the thing about the slave trade just struck me right if it weren't for the slave trade we wouldn't have had a nigger here 
until they started airlifting Somalians. Because, you know, think about this, the people in Europe, right? The people in Europe might be working in the coal mines or, or in the shipyards in, in Italy or Germany or Poland or wherever they are, right? Slaving away in a factory. And they want to improve their lives and, and make themselves better. So they cut down on their household expenses and, and they toil and they save their pennies. And eventually they get enough money together for um, third class passage on, on, on a freighter or, or a, a passenger ship somewhere. And they pack their family up and they come to America. Would a Negro do that in Chad? No. See, and that's that's what <laughs> Never. Yeah, they can't do that. So that's what God said. He had to put a hook in their jaw. <laughs> they weren't going to come on their own. You know? They would never do that on their own. They would yeah. never. <laughs> the mestizos can hoof it from Guatemala or El Salvador, Mexico. You know, they can they can walk it, and they do. And they do, yeah. Or they but, drive in Chevy Novas or something. <laughs> but these, you know, these hapless 65, 70 IQ apes over in Africa, they were never going to come here on their own. It just wasn't going to happen. So they were drug over here in the slave trade. <laughs> I think there's a deeper meaning to I will put hooks into that jaws, but that's okay. That's fine. I mean, it works. <laughs> <laughs> the the bottom line is this that that um we can't that these aliens that they're coming here they don't have a choice we can't stop it no matter what we do we don't have a political solution we can't do it Yahweh our God wants all of these foreigners and aliens these street shitters these sand niggers that these um African yard apes he wants them all here to show us his power. Yes. I mean, it, it. I mean, if you were to take, if you were just to look at this and say, hey, wait a minute. Um, you know, I, I listened to a podcast with uh, Ted Midward and Tom Kaczynski earlier in the week, and Tom was talking about um, white people are going to be extinct if we don't do something within the next 10 years. And he, he does not looking at it from the angle we are, but if you look at it from, you know, he, he's doing some, <clears throat> excuse me, some some uh, analysis, you know, by the numbers. And we're, as white people on the planet, we're getting very close to a tipping point. Whereas if something doesn't happen, we're not going to exist in 75 or 100 years. Well, well, it's going to all be like South Africa. That's and, the godless, logical viewpoint, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and we know that it's going to look bad because if, if you look at this like Tom does and say, "Hey, wait a minute, uh, these immigration, th these the immigration thing, this is replacement level." Yeah, it is. And uh, as soon as you try to defend yourself or you know start talking uh, about whites needing a homeland or white nationalism, white separatism, you are immediately deplatformed. Um, you were vilified, right? Vilified. Yep. Yeah. It, it's okay to advocate for a a Jewish ethno state. Um, you can have a Chinese ethno state. You can have a Japanese ethno state. You can have an African ethno state, but you cannot have a white ethno state. 
Well, thankfully, I'm not deplatformed. Yeah, I, I, I kind of voluntarily took myself, um, and I guess we could do a little housekeeping here. Um, I've deleted my Gab account, my Twitter. Um, well, well you have blog. an important reason right now because you're, you're, you're in a position that you just can't afford to, um, to be doxxed at this point. Yeah, well, and yeah, and the my blog is set to private, so if people were going to look for the show notes there, they um, my blog is offline temporarily, and this is not any doing of, of you know the power structure. It's just a personal decision on my part to uh, lay low for the for the time being. Well, sometimes you just got to make a living. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, there's um, very little money in 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 the truth movement and Christian identity, even so. It, it's, yeah, but you know, I figure here I can come onto this platform and we'll uh, we'll tell people what's going on and uh, you know try to analyze this thing the best we can. Um, but we know in the end we will win, and it, the end of this process will result in God being glorified, even though it looks bleak now. And left to our own devices, there's no way that we could could fix this. Well, well, absolutely, and and when it's all over, all these Davy Daisy Duke types, Kevin McDonalds, all these alt right types that are um, that that think that is a political or a secular solution, or or that we can save ourselves, all these people are going to be disgraced. Yeah, in, in the final analysis, yeah, that will be true. Um, now, I can't blame a guy wanting you know for being a white nationalist i mean they're on the right track they're just not to that last level of understanding well i'm talking about some of the people who just won't get there it's yeah. been put in front of their faces well they'll see it play out um if they live long enough and you know like you had talked about the polarization of, of the political landscape and that's something we were, were talking about this week where you know, five, ten years ago, there was this big, you know, fat middle of the road where, you know, it didn't really matter if you elected a Democrat or Republican. Everything pretty much stayed the same. Um, now, that's that is not the case. Um, even for, you know, Trump, you know, and of course, he's got plenty of, uh, you know, warts and he's far from perfect, but. Just for suggesting the fact that the United States should have a border is causing it he has drawn the ire of international jewelry isn't that incredible yeah i mean i mean what is a if, if a country doesn't have a border it's not a country but if you suggest that the united states should have borders you will be vilified i i had some um we had opportunity in Ohio to meet with somebody. He he wasn't one of the people who attended or who came to attend Clifton's funeral. He he was um, sort of like a friend of a friend who stopped by to see us. And he he described himself um, religiously, but I really forget how he labeled himself but he also made it a point and this is a normal seeming white guy from Ohio he also made it a point to tell us that he didn't believe in borders 
And I'm like, what the hell? Well, the, the stuff has been disseminated in the media, you know, relentlessly. It's, I mean, the Pope is is advocating for open borders. I guess yeah. it's crazy. It's become a a, a political. Uh, I mean, the Jews come up with these factoids and they repeat them so often in the media that people in real life start to repeat them because all they do is watch the media. Yeah, and you know, I'll give Trump credit for this. Um, he's he's really uh, up the ante on this fake news uh, business and the social media. Um, uh, shutting out of conservative people, even even describing yourself as a conservative is no longer safe. You know, Alex Jones, you know, as as wacko as he is, he's been banned permanently from Twitter, uh, from the Apple App Store, YouTube, completely showed, and his operation is basically Jewish. It's run by. Um, uh, the Bronfman family, from what I can tell, and they were the Bronfmans were knee deep in the JFK assassination. Absolutely, and and Alex Jones can't maintain a platform if he can't maintain a presence on Twitter. That's got to tell you something. Um, the Jews are really up in the game. They really want to. Um, they want to get this thing in into full gear and wipe us out. The Bronfmans uh, also made their fortune bootlegging liquor to Al to Al Capone. Yes, yeah, they were and big and other gangsters yeah. in other cities. Yeah, they they run the Seagram's Distillery uh, to this day, and uh, was it Holly Bronfman? I, I believe her name is. Uh, she's facing all kinds of pedophilia charges and whatnot, and she just. She made bail. I think it was it was like several million dollars. I think she had to post for bail. They also was, run Universal Studios. I think. Yeah, they've got their their they've got their tentacles and in, into a lot of areas. Yeah, they're a very powerful family. They're they're far up the the, the, the foods the, you know the, the power structure. Well, Charles Bronfman was um, the chairman of the World Jewish Council. Yeah, I, I think it's his nephew Edgar Bronfman. It sold his shares in Seagram's to buy Universal Studios or something like that. But this happened back in the '90s or the aughts. I forget. It, it's at least 15 years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Bronfmans are extremely powerful, and if if their if their frontman can't maintain a presence in social media, that's got to tell you something about where we're at today. Well, I mean, I don't know how much longer this could go on. Um, Maybe another know, fifty years. I, I, I would, I would, I don't think it can go another fifty. Um, at the rate that they're flooding in, um, I think to maintain, like you know, as we had talked about in, in, a, in a previous show, to maintain modern civilization, you need at least a, a ninety-eight average IQ and importing. The 70 IQ ape and the 80 IQ mestizo, and in these vast numbers, that's going to really put a strain on the system. So, how much longer this can float? 
you know, it's it's pure speculation. I would say probably between five and twenty years would would be my ballpark. Well, I think talking about um, countries being sustained with under a ninety-eight IQ, maybe we should consider next month talking about South Africa a little bit. Yeah, they're uh, they're in the news again, um, and you know they're they're facing a genocide, and uh, they're. Um, they're going to get their land taken from them by uh, the Jewish-run African National Congress. And the Jewish media is in denial once again. And and we should probably also look at these um, that these demonstrations in in Germany are really going full steam. Uh, I mean that they're a lot more formidable than they were a couple of years ago. Yes, white people are starting to develop a racial consciousness, and we're we're starting to see identity politics now uh, really come to the center of the, of the political stage. You know, the left-right paradigm is now pretty much out the window. Um, conservative now means white. Well, well, that that's actually probably um, true to a point, at least in Germany. You know, um, AP Archive, that these Chemnitz protests, right? I saw one article in AP that they were far-right protests against immigration. But then I saw an article on CNN that the immigration protests in Germany were being driven by the far-left. And I'm like, well, what the hell? (laughs) What's going on here, man? That they can't even identify these people, right? I mean, so it seems to me to be like a, a coalition of. I I haven't really looked into it yet, but it seems to be a coalition of whites from both sides of the political spectrum that are tired of these immigrants coming in and and raping and and stabbing white people. So that there were actually protests back in August that 6,000 people attended. Now, okay, 6,000 is a drop in a hat. But this is Germany. This is where you could go to jail just for certain forms of speech. And I was at the Unite the Right rally with the League of the South last year in Charles in, in um, Charlottesville, Virginia. I wish we had 6,000 people there. We probably yeah, if you only want to had put that in perspective. Yeah, is allegedly you know controlled as they are in Germany. Look at what you have here. Yeah, right. We couldn't get anything like six thousand people to come out to a rally. No, I mean, and, and the people in Germany were kind of spontaneously protesting uh, uh, the murder of a guy who tried to stop a, a, a white woman from being raped, and he got stabbed, and that just set set them off and. You know, at some point, we're going to start seeing that in the United States. Um, I mean, we see these black chimp outs all the time. And over Labor Day weekend in Chicago, they were going to have a protest. They wanted to shut down uh, the freeway into O'Hare Airport. Um, But Rahm Emanuel, the Jewish mayor of Chicago, put the kibosh on the protest, and they arrested some of the leaders and stuff. Only about 60 apes showed up for that thing, but... um, Blacks will chimp out at the drop of a hat, but 
eventually we're going to see white Americans, I think, take to the streets. And Jews are very nervous about that. They don't want that happening yet. Um, not until we're completely cornered. Um, there's still too many of us. Uh, they don't want to see that. We shall see. That's all I can say. I can't try to tell the future. No, I can't either. I mean, we, we know how it ends, you know, in the end, but, you know, when is that going to be? How exactly does it play out? You know, those are open questions. We we don't have a crystal ball here, so. Well, I hope to see you October 6th. Okay, well, we will uh, do our level best to uh, be ready for uh, uh, another update in early October. We'll talk to you then, Don. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and of no other race but Israel, and certainly not the God of the Jews. That would make him the God of Satan. It's not happening. Thank you, Don, and good night. Thanks, Bill.